Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast. I'm Amelia Hamilton, your host. Are you ready to join me for another week back in colonial America? Here we go. Joining us this week is a very special six-year-old from Long Island. My name's Shannon, I'm six, and I'm from Long Island. This week we're learning about colonial celebrations. That's right. We're going to be learning about holidays and weddings and parties and all kinds of different celebrations today. Charlotte, what are your questions? What did children get for Christmas? How did they celebrate Christmas? Were there any other holidays children celebrated? What were weddings like? Did they have flower girls at weddings? Those are great questions. I can't wait for you to hear the answers. The best way to learn about history is to hear from the people who lived it. So here are some things that were written during colonial times about different celebrations, holidays, and parties. Hi, I'm Ian. I'm 14 and I'm from Texas. Robert Hunter Jr. wrote on December 1st, 1985 about what we would call a red wedding reception today. He said, after dinner, we danced cotillions, minuets, Virginia and Scotch reels, country dances, jigs, etc., till 10 o'clock. I had the pleasure of Miss McCall for a partner. She's a fine, sensible, accomplished young girl, and by far the best dancer in the room. The bride and bridegroom led off the different country dances after supper, which wasn't elegant as the dinner. We continued dancing till 12. Nicholas Cresswell, an Englishman who spent years in Virginia and kept a journal, wrote while in Alexandria on December 25th, 1774, Christmas Day, but little regarded it here. Cresswell did, however, attend a ball on the 12th night. There was about 37 ladies dressed and powdered to the lake, to the like some of them very handsome, and as much vanity as is necessary. All of them fond of dancing, but I do not think they perform it with the greatest elegance. Betwixt the country dances, they have what I call everlasting jigs. A couple gets up and begins to dance a jig to some negro tune. Others comes out and cuts them out. These dances always last as long as the fiddler can play. This is social, but I think it looks more like a Bachelanian dance than one in a polite assembly. Old women, young wives with young children on the laps, widows, maids, and girls come prominently to these assemblies, which generally continue till morning. A cold supper, punch, wine, coffee, and chocolate, but no tea. This is a forbidden herb. The men chiefly Scotch and Irish. In 1772, the Virginia Gazette published a letter from an old fellow who lived in England. 
He complained about the decay of English customs and manners. After describing the old English Christmas when the kitchen was the palace of plenty, jollity, and good eating, he wrote, Now mark the picture of the present time. Instead of that firm roast beef, that fragrant pudding, our tables grown with the luxuries of France and India. Here's a lean fricassee rises in the room of our majestic ribs, and there a scoundrel syllabub occupies the place of our well-beloved home-brewed. The solid meal gives way to the, si the slight repast, and forgetting that good eating and good porter are two great supporters of Magna Charta and the British Constitution. We open our hearts and our mouths to new fashions in cookery, which will one day lead us to ruin. Things were maybe a little bit simpler than it sounds like, but there was still emphasis on being together and dancing and eating, a lot of the same things we do today. Today we have Lindy Cummings, and she is a really special guest. She is a research historian coming to us from Tryon Palace in North Carolina. Lindy, why don't you tell us a little bit about Tryon Palace and how special it is and what you do there? Well, I would be happy to do that. Um, Tryon Palace is the um, reconstructed home of the royal governors from the 1770s. So reconstructed meaning that it is not the original palace that was here in 1767. Uh, that particular building uh, was finished being built in 1770. And then unfortunately in 1798, it burnt down. Oh. And so uh, while it had a really wonderful and illustrious history, while the original building was still standing for most of you know, the 19th and 20th century, it was largely um, forgotten, you know, mm -hmm. sort of like uh, something that lived on in people's imaginations, the stuff of legends, but sure. there was very little evidence of what had been on the site. And so in the early 20th century, about mm -hmm. the time that the Rockefellers were getting started with Colonial Williamsburg, there was, uh, of course, a lot of interest from in other groups um, to sort of reconstruct their own historical sites. And so there was a group in New Bern that started to raise interest in reconstructing the palace. And that really got underway in the 1940s and then was stalled out during World War II and then kind of got back on track in the 1950s. And they the state purchased the land, the old land that the palace had been built on. And there was a, a group of people who fundraised and donated antiques and searched for original plans. And then eventually the palace was reconstructed um, between 1953 and then opened. There was a grand opening in 1959. Wow. So it looks as, as much like the original as it can? It, yes, it is as close as they could get it. Uh, to the original palace. Luckily, very early on in the 1930s, they were able to find an original set of plans up in oh, the, at the cool. New York Historical Society. And then they found an additional set of plans at the British Library in London. And then as recently as uh, the mid-1990s, they found oh. a 
third set of plans in all of all places, Venezuela. Oh, wow. So it, it, we have sets of plans that, that we know um, that people use to kind of uh, re-envision how the palace should look in the present day. Wow. So, so who lived there or what, what kind of things happened at the palace? So the palace was built, uh, as I said, in 1767, starting in 1767, for William Tryon. He was uh, one of the he's second to last royal governor. He came over in uh, the 1760s. And at that time, there was no permanent capital. We were not like colonial Williamsburg or some of the other colonies where there was a permanent capital building where the governor lived mm -hmm. and where he met with the legislative um, assemblymen. And Tryon really lamented this. Uh, he didn't like traveling around. Um, they would kind of share between different towns, okay. Um, okay. like having the assembly meet different places. And as you can imagine, roads were not great. Mm -hmm. So it was a bit of a burden to transport all the papers of state from one place to another just to kind of, you know, make the, the meeting equal, equally divided um, among the different cities. And so he picked New Bern and sent his plans off to London to be approved by um, the king. Mm -hmm. And those were approved. He had very fortuitously brought an architect with him when he came over. Yep. And so that architect's name was John Hawks. And so John Hawks was able to draw up these plans. Um, once they had approval, they had to borrow some money from a local merchant to get started um, but they were able to raise some additional revenue through taxes, which were, of course, very unpopular. Sure. Yeah. And so then in 1770, they had the grand opening and Tryon um, lived there for a very short time. And then he was succeeded by um, Josiah Martin. And Martin was the last royal governor. And so he and his family lived there until um, 1775, uh, about the time that the revolution really started to get underway. Mm -hmm. um, so he would have been the last royal governor in residence at the palace. Okay. Wow. And what do you do at the palace? So my job is the research historian, um, which actually sounds a lot more glamorous than being <laughs> in most cases. Um, but I provide uh, background information for educational programming. Um, I do a lot of work with our exhibits team. Oh, and oh. so, you know, for example, we're working on an exhibit for next year that's going to look at uh, notable women in our community and uh, mostly 19th and 20th century women. Um, I'm doing some work on that. And then if we get public queries from school kids or um, adults, I typically am the one who responds to those. So I might do a little research to come up with an answer or it might be just something simple that I know off the top of my head. Like we got a, a query just yesterday. Um, someone was wondering, we have a couple of historic homes that have been moved several times. And so they were wondering, well, where did this historic house start out? Oh, did we know the original lots? And so I was able to pass along information about where this house had originally been and then sort of why, why the lot had been sold and where the house had been moved next and then why that house uh, then had to be moved to an additional location. So that's kind of in a nutshell um, what I do here on a daily basis. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it, is, it is fun. I really do love it. it. It's, you know, kind of like, yeah, it's my dream job. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were just the perfect fit when Charlotte had some questions about different celebrations in the colonial times. Yes. So um, to dig right in, 
what were some of the special holidays and other events that children might have been involved in in colonial times? Well, there were a variety of different holidays. Some we would recognize today and some we might not recognize today. Um, one of the things that was very important for colonists was to celebrate uh, important milestones in the lives of the English monarchs. Hmm. So it's a good colonial subject if the monarch was married, if they had a baby, uh, if they ascended to the throne, or if they died. This is something that you're going to mark with a festivity or a ceremony of some type. So there's a couple of examples that um, I've run across Um Mostly celebrating um, the king's birthday. That was a very popular thing to celebrate. So mm-hmm. in 1741, there was a 16-year-old girl named Eliza Lucas Pinckney. And some of your listeners may be familiar with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was one of the um, young ladies who helped to develop indigo as one of the exports oh. in South Carolina. But she wrote down in a letter that she had attended festivities in Charlestown, South Carolina, and it was for King George II's birthday, and uh, there were uh, there was a review of the militia troops, which maybe doesn't quite sound as fun for us, but we were like a, a parade. Mm-hmm. Um, there were military exercises, and then it sort of capped it all off with a very large dinner and a fancy dress ball. She remembered celebrating the king's birthday. When Triumph Palace opened in December, one of the things that they did was they coincided the opening with King George III's birthday. And so they had bonfires and fireworks and a ball. And so, you know, if you were younger, you might not be able to, you know, stay up and attend a ball if you were. um, But you could certainly, you know, go out and watch a bonfire. And fireworks would have been very exciting, just as they are today. Sure. There was another little girl in Boston who was about 12, and she also celebrated the King's Coronation Day in 1772. And again, there were fireworks. So fireworks were a very popular part of celebrating these these milestones. Fun. Yeah, we talk, we've talked in previous episodes a little bit about music and dancing being a big part of, of culture. So it's, it's yeah. fun to see how those are part of celebrations. Exactly. And you know, there were other holidays, too. One that uh, we would recognize today would be Thanksgiving. Uh, it was a little different. We celebrate Thanksgiving, of course, every year, third Thursday of the, of the month of November. Um, they weren't quite as um, rigorous in how they celebrated Thanksgiving. It might be something that a governor or uh, someone who is a leader in the town might say, oh, we should have a day of Thanksgiving to celebrate something that's good that's happened or for God's blessings. And so they would declare a day like this is going to be Thanksgiving day. And most likely instead of, you know, doing anything fun, you might go to church and listen to a sermon. But Anna Green Winslow did remember that when there was a Thanksgiving day in Boston, it did involve a nice dinner. So they had family over and ate a very nice dinner So that's, you know, it's very similar to what we would do today, probably for Thanksgiving. So another of Charlotte's questions is, what were colonial weddings like? Yes, so weddings. um, There would be some things that we would recognize today, but by and large, weddings were very different. Um, They could be very elaborate if you were very wealthy or if your family was very wealthy. Or they could just be extremely simple to the point where today we would kind of be like, well, that wasn't very special at all. 
Um, most likely, if you were getting married in the colonies, that wedding would take place in your home or another relative's home. Church weddings were seem to be more common in England, but not as common in the colonial period uh, to take place in churches. There would be a short ceremony, and typically then there would be a meal or some type of festivity. The level of festivities would really um, depend on how much money and what you could afford. So there's an example of... Um, of a girl who lived on the frontier of Maine in 1793. Her name was Parthenia. She married a gentleman named Mr. Pitt, and they had a very simple ceremony. They went to Parthenia's aunt and uncle's house, where they were married with just maybe one or two friends in attendance, and then they had a very small family dinner afterwards. And so probably in this case, Parthenia did not have what we would consider to be a wedding dress, she probably would likely wore whatever best dress she already had because the family wasn't extremely wealthy. And, you know, if to, in order to have a best dress, you know, it takes a little bit more money. You're going to have to go to a dressmaker most likely or spend a lot of time sewing it yourself. So she probably just put on whatever she had in her in her home that was the nicest. Um, it wasn't it, her marriage actually wasn't even officiated by a minister, which now we would kind of expect that you would get married in a church with a minister in attendance. She was actually just married by a justice of the peace. So that might be similar to like a courthouse wedding today. Mm -hmm. And her cousin had a very similar uh, marriage. They just married very quietly at home. And unusually for these girls, um, they once they were married, they actually lived at home with their parents for an additional month and finished up seasonal tasks so, you know, they were like helping their mother with weaving and housekeeping and they won't, didn't actually move in with their husbands until those tasks were done. So there was no honeymoon. Um, they you know, basically got married, had a nice dinner, got up the next morning and went back to work just like they had before they were married, which seems very strange to us. Yeah. And how old were these women or you know, other people when they got married? They... Parthenia, I believe, was in her late teens, um, possibly early 20s. So, you know, she wasn't terribly old. I mean, she was not young, young. She wasn't 15, mm -hmm. um, but probably younger than we would consider getting married today. And, of course, there is an emphasis in the 18th century on romantic love and companionship. But for most people who are getting married, there's sort of a practicality to it. You're looking for someone who's going to be a good partner. Um, economics is playing a big role. You know, someone who's going to be able to support you really well or not squander your family's wealth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if you want to talk about, you know, a very elegant wedding, you would have the wedding of Martha Custis and George Washington. And, of course, Martha was married uh, young for, the, for her first uh, marriage. And her, when her husband died, of course, she was very wealthy when he died. And so she was able to have sort of what we would consider like the best of the best as far as a wedding. She sent away to London for an elegant gown. Uh, of course, we're used to white wedding dresses, but at this time, um, any color would really do. So Martha was married in a yellow silk gown with a white silk petticoat. 
And then she had a very special set of purple silk slippers that were made for her in London. Oh gosh. And they actually, yes. And they're very, if you go on to the Mount Vernon website, you can actually see pictures of Martha, uh, her slippers, her wedding oh. slippers. And they send out invitations, which is something that we would recognize today because when we get married, we send out an invitation inviting all of our friends and family. Um, and there in the Washington Library, there's a reproduction of the engraved invitation that was sent out asking friends and family to join them to celebrate Martha and George's marriage. So that's that would be a little bit more similar to maybe what we would think of today when we would think of a, a wedding, you know, something special to wear, special shoes an invitation inviting all of your friends, and then a very nice wedding uh, meal afterwards that everyone would sit down and celebrate. Yeah. And Charlotte was also wondering if there were flower girls, and that sounds like maybe something that that might have been a little too fancy. <laughs> Probably for most people. I did look around to see if I could find an example of flower girls, and I couldn't find um, an example of where flower girls were used. I'm sure that probably someone had a flower girl. I did find one wedding in Maryland where a guest recorded that there were six bridesmen and maids and that they were dressed very elegantly. So it, apparently in some circles, it was customary to have a bridal party of some sort, um, although probably not quite what we would recognize today as a bridal party. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, and Charlotte's other celebration or holiday that she was really excited about was Christmas. So, uh, yes. <laughs> so what was Christmas like in colonial America? How, how would that have been celebrated? Well, Christmas was also probably not something we might recognize elements of it today, but by and large, I think for us in the 21st century, if we were transported back to the 18th, we would probably find Christmas very boring. Um, and just not quite as exciting as we're accustomed to. So we really think about the Christmas season as starting, you know, probably after Thanksgiving or maybe before if you're really, you know, really lo love your Christmas season. But most likely after Thanksgiving, most of us, you know, think about putting up our tree and hanging our stockings and starting our shopping. Um, the decorations, the colored lights, the carols, the trees, the gifts, um, these were not really part of Christmas in the 18th century, which could be a little disappointing, I suppose. So they called it keeping Christmas. Okay. And it could be okay. rowdy, um, but it was for uh, much simpler than what we would consider Christmas celebrations today. So sometimes people would use Christmas as an excuse to eat and drink a little bit too much. You know, you're in the winter, and so you maybe you want to drink and eat something a little extra nice and maybe you know, overindulged just slightly. Um, there were people who looked at Christmas as a chance. Um, maybe you have a day off of work, which you wouldn't customarily have. Maybe this is a time to be a little bit rowdy or engage in some disruptive behavior. Um, this is especially true for groups of laborers, so farm workers or um, people who um, aren't necessarily wealthy. You know, this is their chance to kind of have a, a nice day for themselves um, kind of indulge themselves a little bit. Most colonists did mark the season in some way. Um, and in New England, however, that was not the case. So the Puritans were not a fan of Christmas by any means. They considered it to be a pagan holiday. Oh, they did 
approve of drinking and they did not approve of disruptive behavior. And they saw Christmas as just an excuse for both. So in Massachusetts, uh, in late 17th century Massachusetts, there was even a law for a short time that uh, would fine people for celebrating Christmas. So if you were caught keeping Christmas in any way, they would slap a fine on you. Oh, my goodness. Right. So they just they really they thought that the typical behavior associated with the Christmas season was irreverent. It wasn't the proper way to pay homage to Christ's birth. So in, in this and later on, they relax the rules because, I mean, Christmas has always been a time of rejoicing. And so people have enjoyed celebrating that. And so even you know later, they sort of relax a little bit. But, you know, to go back to our example, Anna Green Winslow, who was a little girl growing up in Boston in 1771, she wrote that she kept her Christmas at home and did a very good day's work. Yeah. And that sounds very boring to us. I mean, I just can't imagine staying home on Christmas Day and just doing work. Mm -hmm. But that was how she kept Christmas with her family. So they did the New Englanders attitudes did loosen up. But you know, there were still some people that were less than enthusiastic about celebrating holidays in any particular way. But if you did celebrate Christmas, it was really more than a single day of celebration. And instead of starting at Thanksgiving and then going to December 25th, the Christmas season actually would start at December 25th and run through January 6th. So there would be 12 days of Christmas. And, of course, everyone's going to think about the song, The 12 Days of Christmas. Yeah. That's kind of where that comes from. So you would run from Christmas Day, which celebrates the birth of Christ, to January 6th or Epiphany, which is a church holiday. And that was celebrating the day that the three wise men brought gifts to the baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so many families actually might not do that much for Christmas Day, but they might do more for Twelfth Night, that January 6th celebration. Um, There's a tradition of Twelfth Night cakes in the 18th century. And these were, you know, usually uh, filled with spices and fruit and lots of eggs and butter. These are very rich and dense cakes and sometimes very, very large. Martha Washington had a particularly rich recipe um, that's also available through Mount Vernon's website. Um, But she would have this baked when the Washington family was celebrating Twelfth Night. And you might have things like a ball. Um, There was a girl in Maryland, Molly Tillman, who uh, remembered that you know, on Christmas Day, she had gone to a ball. Um, you were also very more likely to go to church on Christmas Day. So it might be a day of sort of solemnity, going, listening to a sermon, going home, having a nice meal, then going back to church and hearing another sermon, which you know, to us seems very boring. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, George Washington and his family, they attended church services and then they would have dinner with friends. So that was more the custom and decorations. If you were a German colonist living in the Americas, you might have some type of decorations, like maybe cutting an evergreen bough or um, having candles. But in general, decorations that we would think of today as associated with Christmas would not have been something that they would have had. Trees that are decorated and presents really are something that comes out of the Victorian era in the mid-19th century. Um, Not necessarily something that's practiced in the 18th century. Okay. 
Well, that was Charlotte's last question was about Christmas presents. So I guess that answers that one. Yes. So, you know, it's not to say that no one ever got a Christmas present, but just like for us, it's such an accustomed part. Like if we went to Christmas and there were no presents, it would be a little shocking. Mm -hmm. It's just so, but for them, you know, maybe you would get a little gift, um, but it's not something that you expect. Right. I did cross an example where someone had received a gift at New Year's, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so she, she was wishing a friend, you know, happy New Year's. And then saying, oh, I received a book for my New Year's gift today, but I haven't purchased any New Year's gifts. So some people must have kept New Year's as kind of a maybe what we would think of as more of like Christmas morning where you would receive a gift or something like that. Or it could just have been that was her family's tradition. Mm-hmm. They did greet each other in ways that we would recognize. I've come across several letters where people wish one another many happy returns of the season or one that was even wishing another friend a Merry Xmas. So oh. X-M-A-S, like we would abbreviate it today, which mm-hmm. I thought was in- interesting. So there's, you know, there's things that we would recognize today. Um, but yeah, just far more sedate, not quite as exciting back in the day. Yeah. But still those same ideas of being together with friends and family and music yeah. and dancing. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, still a lot that we might, that has still come through the, the, through the generations. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, you know, taking a day off and enjoying ourselves, that's mm-hmm. still very much a part of, you know, our Christmas celebrations. Um, you know, most of us probably get a couple of days off work if we're working and, you know, to enjoy some, some time to do some other things and celebrate with people. And, uh, Pies, um, I was reading this morning, actually, and just ran across an, an incident where someone was talking about how they needed help eating all their Christmas pies. So <laughs> in my family, having a pie at Christmas or several different kinds of pie is very important. Mm-hmm. And so having a Christmas pie or a variety of pies was apparently important to some people in the 18th century as well. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting to learn. Well, Lindy, thank you so much for joining us this week and telling us all about colonial celebrations. You're welcome. So colonial celebrations were pretty different. For one thing, they were celebrating the English monarchs with parties, parades, fireworks, bonfires, dinners. We certainly didn't do that after the American Revolution. Kids couldn't stay up for the ball, but they still got to have a good time. They still had Thanksgiving in colonial times, but it wasn't necessarily on the third Thursday in November like it is now. Leaders of a town or a colony would call for a day of thanks when they felt like it was time. Weddings weren't at all as big as they are today. For most people, they just got married at home with a few people, had a ceremony, a meal, maybe a little party of some kind. They were usually not even in a church. And the bride didn't even get a special wedding gown. She just wore her best dress. But of course, that depended on how much money they had. Wealthy brides could have a big wedding, a big party, and a fancy new dress. Today, people really get married because they fall in love. But in the colonial times, that wasn't necessarily true. They might get married because they found a good partner for a business or somebody who had land near them. They wanted to bring their families together. There are a lot of really practical reasons other than just falling in love. 
Christmas was also much simpler. There weren't really decorations or presents. There were no trees. People would spend time with their family, have a great meal, go to church. And those are a lot of the same things we still do today on Christmas. But they also celebrated Epiphany, or Twelfth Night, which we really don't celebrate as much today. So while a lot has changed, that idea of having a day off, some good music, food, celebration, spending time with your family, those things have still stayed through the generations. What do you think? Would you have liked colonial celebrations? Well, that's all for this week. Remember to visit growingpatriots.com for more videos, resources, coloring pages, all kinds of things that go with every episode. You can check out Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My username is Growing Patriots on all of those. Like and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen, and tell some patriotic friends about us. See you next week. America, land of the free, America, land of the free.